we are now moving into the second part, which is the discussions. Uh, we first start with uh, Marvin Lieberman here from UCLA, and he will have five minutes for each paper. And I will, uh, when there's one minute left for each paper, then I will give you a little signal here so that we have an equal chance for each, for each paper. Go ahead, Marvin. Okay, Jan, don't worry. Thank you, by the way, for inviting me to, to be the discussant here. Um, I, I don't think I'll take five minutes. In fact, I didn't actually get papers. I got the presentations. So I, I, I think I have less than five minutes to say about each, but I will make some, some general comments about, about imitation here. Uh, so let me start with, with the general comments. Um, as, as many of you know, I've written a bit about imitation, uh, this paper on why do firms imitate each other uh, with Shigeru Asaba that was in the Academy of Management Review and other work on first mover advantages, a topic that I've done a number of papers on, uh, which essentially is about uh, innovation and, and imitation. Um, so, so let me just start by saying that, um, I mean, Hart described imitation as multidimensional. I have it here as, as a multifaceted phenomenon. Uh, this uh, symposium is about broadening uh, oops, oops. You know, broadening um, our perspective on imitation, but it, it, I would have to say that my view is that imitation is already extremely broad. There are many different kinds of imitation that we have out there and many different domains in which we see imitation. Um, for example, uh, you know, in, just in this symposium, um, uh, you know, Alex and Taing's paper is really about the timing of investment uh, the, the movie paper, Jan and Dimitri and their associates, is really about introduction of new products. I think uh, that Hart is really talking about you know, market entry, sort of much higher level uh, set of issues about, about imitation. Uh, so, so, so there are many domains uh, where imitation takes place and imitations of many different types. Uh, I mean, it's really complicated and some of these are more strategic and others are more tactical. Just to give you some examples um, in the market entry domain, um, which I would call strategic imitation. Uh, you know, we all know that uh, to maintain superior profitability, successful innovators need barriers to imitation. Hart said that um, it, was, it was in his, his slide that most of the SMJ papers published on imitation are actually about, about the barriers, not about imitation strategies. Um, we've got I mean, a fair amount of work showing that fast follower strategies like imitation are recommended for most established firms. And I'll give an example in, in a few minutes that, that Hart didn't describe of a, of a very successful fast follower. Um, so, 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 so we've got this sort of imitation at the strategic level. And then we've got this other kind of imitation, which tends to be, I think, more tactical, uh, which is in response to environmental uncertainty. Not to say there's no uncertainty up here, but when we've got this uncertainty, I've argued, um, and, and Jan and Dimitri both picked up on this, that you know, ultimately, you know, whether you view this from a sociology perspective or an economics perspective, we've got these imitation-based explanations, and we've got rivalry-based explanations, and their paper is uh, designed to try to pick apart the, these two components in the movie industry. So having said that, uh, let me move on to talk about the papers, and let me start uh, with uh, uh, Dr. Posen's paper here, um, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Imitation. Um, give you a, a minute to appreciate the nice graphic I found on the web. Um, 
And I don't have much to say about Hart's paper uh, because I agree with what he says. I mean, this is, of course, at a very high level in this symposium. We've got Hart at a very high level. We've got, um, you know, the other two papers at a much more fine level. Oops. Um, so Hart, oops, points out these fallacies. Imitation is not important. It's not a strategy. All approaches to imitation are the same. Imitation is easy. Imitation is done by weak firms, not by industry leaders. Industry undermines heterogeneity in an industry. Imitation is not a source of competitive advantage. And, and I would agree with all of these. Um, you know, there, and I'll show you one prominent example. Um, on the heterogeneity side, of course, it can undermine heterogeneity, but as hard as shown in, in some of his work, it can go in the other direction. Um, so this is a great list of fallacies. Uh, let me just point out that we've got this company called Microsoft, uh, which I don't know if it's number one or number two in, in the world in terms of market capitalization at this point. <clears throat> but it, it continually goes back and forth with this innovative firm called Apple uh, for that, that top position. And Microsoft has pursued an imitation strategy for decades. I don't know if they would agree to call it an imitation strategy, but that's what it is. Uh, just to give some examples, Word was an imitation of WordPerfect, Excel was an imitation of Lotus 123, Internet Explorer was an imitation of Netscape, and today Azure is an imitation of Amazon Web Services. So, um, you know, Microsoft has been a supreme imitator and been very successful at it, and I think basically is proof of all of the, the points that, that, that uh, Hart made. So, Let's cross out all these fallacies. I agree with Hart. And I would argue that his presentation is, is right on target here. Um, those of you who, who have, have not seen Dr. Strangelove should definitely see it. Okay, let's go on to um, Alex and Taying's paper. Um, so it's clear that they have found something interesting, but what exactly is it? Um, so, so you know, Alice went through this very quickly, but, but basically when Apple uh, sets up a new category in the App Store, there's a jump in product updates, either significant updates or minor updates. Something happens when, when this new category is broken out. Um, but what does that mean? Uh, let, let me just point out uh, some of the context here. I mean, Alex described it in, in pretty theoretical terms. I'm going to just talk about it in more practical terms. So, so the App Store has got, um, I think there are 25 categories, um, and you see them here. And in their study in this time period, Apple created three new categories, medical, catalogs, and food and drink. But then they, they eliminated catalogs a few years later um, they, they put it back into the shopping category. So, so what we're seeing here is that when Apple creates a new category, there's a jump in firms uh, refurbishing their apps, essentially. Um, and as an additional measure, they've got um, what they call category spanning, which is just the number of categories that each app was, was, was in. Uh, so, so if a, a, a product is in multiple categories, um, it's going to be a category spanner, and if it's in one category, um, it's not. Um, so they've got two findings. New category creations have positive impacts 
on competitive intensity, basically product updates. And the second is that category spanning weakens um, this effect, which they describe as in terms of ambiguous identities. I, I'm not so sure about that. But let me just make a few specific comments. Um, I view competitive intensity as essentially the rate of incremental innovation. These product updates are, are incremental innovations. And I suspect that the creation of a new category stimulates customer search and customer demand. And so basically, when there's this new category, customers are looking in that new category and the, the, the app creators say, aha, it's time, you know, if we're gonna compete, we, we should update our app uh, and improve it. So people see that it's, you know, it's new and improved or up to date. Uh, there is, by the way, this whole literature in economics, at least on induced innovation. Uh, Jacob Schmuckler found that, that demand changes were more important in eliciting innovation than, than changes in the state of knowledge. Um, actually, pretty fundamental and interesting result. Another uh, point I want to make about, about the, uh, the boundary spanning is that it, I think it's not too surprising that when a product's in multiple categories, it's going to have a weaker effect. Uh, I mean, if you're only in one category, you know, that, um, that category, any change in it is going to have a big effect on you. Uh, but if you're in multiple categories, probably uh, the effect's going to be less. And I would check to make sure that, that this catalogs category that Apple removed uh, isn't driving those results. Uh, so just in general, my comment is that these are really interesting results. They're, they're really quite strong. Um, but I think they're more relevant for this categories literature. It's a, it's a very interesting literature. You know, Joe Porak wrote this nice paper from a sociology perspective on, on these, how these categories get defined. Um, I think this paper can really contribute there, um, perhaps more so than in the imitation literature. Now let me go on to, to talk about the, the, the movie paper, uh, Jan and Dimitri and Yuri and Jamal. Um, you know, why do Hollywood studios imitate each other? And clearly there's a lot of imitation in Hollywood. Um, and they question, you know, are they, do we have information-based motives here? Do we have rivalry-based motives here? Uh, or do we have both? Uh, I think pretty clearly we've, we've got both. Um, so, so here's, uh, this is a question that, 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 that uh, Shigeru and I raised in our, our AMR paper. Here's a figure from that paper. Um, and it was, when we wrote that paper, I was intrigued with, could we really identify this? Um, and I mean, what we conclude from, from this flow chart is that when you've got an uncertain environment, you've got firms in the same market, they're similar size and resources, uh, distinguishing the motives is hard. You're probably gonna have both information-based and rivalry-based imitation. Um, and maybe I'll say a bit more about this later. The, the, the paper we published started off, it was just the theoretical introduction to an empirical paper that we've never published. Uh, and I think we've never published it uh, because it's so hard to do this, uh, so hard to separate out these different motives. You're, you're always going to have a little bit of, of, of each of the motives here in a context like this. Um, so so I, you know, I, I really admire and respect what the authors are trying to do here, um, but I, I, I think it's, and it's, it's an important thing to do, but it's, you know, as to, to how well we can really resolve these effects and, 
and, and the nature of the interaction, that's a little bit unclear. Um, so, so let me just say a, a bit about the, the paper um, or the, 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 the material that I got. Uh, it's got really innovative measures, you know, this cosine measure of, of the extent of imitation, uh, these independent variables, they split two different kinds of uncertainty, demand uncertainty, competitive uncertainty. I, I've got a little bit of concern about whether there's some you know, correlation that might be built in these uncertainty measures with the explanatory factors, um, but, but, uh, or, or, or with the, the dependent variable, but, but I, I won't raise that because it's still really a work in progress. Um, and, and they've got all these hypotheses um, and they, whoops, and let me just go to, the, to their, their key implications. Um, and I, I certainly agree that, that, you know, we need to consider, you know, in context like this, the information rivalry-based motives uh, together. And there, there are certainly interesting interactions between them. There are, um, I think, different contexts where, where some may be stronger than others. In fact, the, the paper that, that uh, Asaba and I still haven't published is really about you know, different, different types of product introduction and why you get uh, one type of imitation uh, dominating over the other in these different contexts. But um, again, let me just, just say that it's, it's really hard um, to, to conclude anything here. So, 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 so let me just end with some, some critical comments. Um, you know, as someone who's tried to do this myself, um, let me just raise some issues. So, so, so what exactly is the ultimate objective here? Uh, what are we trying to do and, and for whom? Um, you know, clearly information and rivalry are both relevant, um, but exactly how do they interact? Uh, we've got a set of hypotheses here that are being tested. Um, can we really cleanly distinguish among those? Um, you know, does this have relevance for managers or are we just as academics trying to figure this out, which I, I do think has value. Um, but ultimately, if, if, if we can't show some utility uh, for managers, uh, there's a question of how far we should really push this. Um, and, you know, if, if, if we did figure this out, if we had a deeper theory, um, you know, what, what could we do with it? So let, let me just stop there. I, I don't know if I'm, I've, I've taken a little more time than I thought, but I think I'm still within my 15 minutes. Uh, let me just mention, it's a really interesting and diverse set of papers. Um, thanks for having me as discussants and, and many thanks to the, the presenters. Thank you very much. Great, thank you. So we are now handing over to our second discussant, uh, Nick Aguirres. Uh, Nick, are you there? Yes, thank you, Jan. Great, we can Thank see you, your slide. Thank you for inviting me. I think my uh, mission is to talk a bit about the literature in general and where some of these works fit in. I wanna start by uh, emphasizing that I have not written about imitation per se. So uh, I'm a newcomer to this literature. I have written a couple of papers that uh, touch on the topic, but it was a nice opportunity for me to look at some of the more recent literature 
and try to organize it a bit and see what I could generate in terms of new, re new research questions. Some of them might be naive. Um, some of them might have been studied already. And I invite people to, to comment uh, in the discussion part about this. So uh, this quote from Herman Melville, I think really highlights uh, how society feels about imitation in most uh, fields of human endeavor. It's better to fail in originality than to succeed in imitation. I think that's a very stark view, about certainly in the creative industries, how people feel. Uh, uh, I think we'd probably disagree <laughs> about that applying in business. I, I personally would prefer, much prefer to succeed in imitation like Microsoft. Uh, so I think Marvin's wonderful paper with Asada Asaba, excuse me, was titled Water Firms Imitate and focuses, as he mentioned, on information-based and rivalry-based motives. There's an older literature about mimetic isomorphism. And so first question for those more knowledgeable is that this literature, the latter, seemed to be limited to the 1990s. And at least I couldn't find much about it. And so one question is, uh, why, why does that literature seem to be uh, superseded by work that takes a more profit-seeking uh, view of imitation. Um, so when do firms imitate? That follows directly from why they imitate. And I think as people have discussed, uh, there are papers about uncertainty uh, leading to imitation, various types of uncertainty, firm-specific versus general. Uh, Jan and, and Dimitri and their colleagues uh, in, uh, incorporate demand uncertainty and competitive uncertainty. Here's my question, and I think it goes back to uh, something that uh, Hart was saying. How much do we know about the way that technological uncertainty affects imitation? I think the idea, is, of course, of many developing countries is that they encourage their firms to imitate technologically advanced rivals with the idea of eventually superseding them. In other words, tech, uh, this is of course the point of apprenticeship, that the imitation serves as a stepping stone. Uh, Brian cited this paper by Juan Alcacer and Joan Oxley, which shows that mobile phone companies, uh, at least before cell phones got destroyed by smartphones, they were able to move from being mere imitators uh, and suppliers to moving downstream and doing some more, more differentiation. So uh, it'd be great to know more about when that can occur and when it doesn't. So for example, there are cases when, when firms choose not to imitate a, a, uh, a, an advanced rival and tr just try to leapfrog directly without doing any imitation. So when does one happen? When does the other happen? My impression, as I said, as a, a newcomer to the literature is that that question is not well understood. The answer to it is not well understood. Um, here's another question I think is not well, and Marvin maybe could speak to this. Uh, what is the relationship between industry structure and uh, rivalrous conditions um, and imitation? How does that interplay work out? Uh, you know, there is the example of Coke and Pepsi, where Coke and Pepsi imitate each other, 
and that drives an industry, a very concentrated industry structure. Um, but that doesn't always happen. In other cases, imitation just invites more entry. So uh, it'd be great to know uh, more, have a better theoretical grasp of the relationship between industry structure. And maybe Marvin's answer would be it's complicated, um, but um, this is the, my question nevertheless. Uh, Another issue, and this is something that I've written on myself, is that what, when firms are making imitation decisions, they have all, presumably have alternatives. Um, as I mentioned before, they could try to leapfrog, uh, or they could try to not imitate and find some other niche to, to protect their existing technology. And so we'd like to know what are the costs of imitation relative to other costs, uh, relative to the costs of leapfrog or relative to the cost of retreating to a niche, uh, relative to the cost of partial imitation as opposed to full imitation. We know a little bit about that. There's a paper about uh, from Etheraj and Leventhal about modularity. Um, and I've written about comparative adjustment costs, but I think we need to still need to know a lot more about what are the determinants of imitation costs. And I emphasize relative to other costs that a firm may be uh, incurring by choosing an alternative strategy. How do firms imitate? So we know that they're very type, there are very uh, different types of innovation. We know that firms can innovate a broader or narrower set of practices from a rival. Uh, we know that firms can imitate more creatively. And I think this is a paper Brian and his co-authors I think here, this last paper leads me to ask, you know, uh, what are the product and service uh, dimensions that uh, firms choose to imitate around? Um, and often there are multiple dimensions in which a product or service is imitated, and then just one or two where there's differentiation, and that can lead to quite a bit of success. Um, and also, what is the role of imitation in learning about demand? Uh, I may want to imitate my rival um, with the idea that it's a new, maybe a new product category, new industry. We don't know a lot about customer demand and I want to experiment by adjusting particular dimensions of a product until I settle on or, or at least the customer demand, demand becomes clearer. We, I don't think we know much about that, but again, I might be wrong if I'm missing something. Um, what organizational arrangements facilitate imitation? Um, and what future constraints do such arrangements impose? If I organize my firm primarily to be an imitator, is that gonna rule out a lot of innovation? Um, that kind of brings the march uh, exploration exploitation trade-off into focus and uh, certainly Microsoft has been an extremely successful imitator has failed miserably in a lot of new uh, innovations um, think about search or you think about uh, tablets um, uh, and uh, there I think there's reason to believe that they're uh, Microsoft fell on the hooks of the exploration exploitation uh, trade-off. But we don't, again, we don't know a lot about that question. 
And then of course, there's a question of who is imitated. Uh, and Jan and Dimitri have addressed this question um, as, as have others. Um, I don't have any particular questions to add on that. And finally, I can kind of interpret Hart's papers as, you know, this categorization has overlaps, of course, but I interpret it as really what are the consequences of innovation? Is there performance heterogeneity? Uh, how effective is benchmarking? And this to me goes back to um, uh, the question I asked earlier, when does imitation lead to future uh, leadership? And when does imitation simply condemn you to forget forever being an imitator? And are, what are the performance consequences of either of those outcomes? Okay, I will stop there and turn it over back over to Jan. Thank you very much for the for the presentation, Nick. Um, Brian, you wanted to show one slide and say one word, and after that, I will hand over to to Heather. Yeah, just a way to uh, uh, motivate our Q and A. So very much, I want to thank uh, Marvin and Nick and all the presenters uh, for their sharing. Right. So. Uh, I mean, I feel like I understand this sentence a little better, right? So imitation is a serious form of capitalism. But I think the, the big strength of strategy field is that we are able to understand the firm level behavior, right? And, and then I think uh, it can be used to shed light on, on you know, some kind of macro, uh, you know, economic or uh, country or society level uh, social welfare, especially in the long term, right? So in some sense, it's uh, ironic because you know, imitation is literally the foundation of absorbed capacity, first or second mover advantage, RBV, et cetera. But somehow, maybe because too foundational, right, kind of taken for granted. So I'm so glad uh, you know, Jan and Dimitri, you know, they organized this uh, wonderful uh, symposium and uh, Heather, uh, Joe, and uh, uh, you know, Samina right, gave us this opportunity. Uh, so yeah, now I'll just uh, hand it back to uh, Jan. Thank He's you very much. Heather, you go first and then yeah. we open the Q&A. Yep, so the only thing I wanna do is uh, we, we have tended to take a screenshot of these uh, at some point during the session so we can post it on our STR, um, uh, what are we, Twitter? <laughs> Whatever we're doing. So we can, we can post it. Um, if people could turn off their video, turn on their video um, and we can just do one quick screenshot, we'd really appreciate it and then we'll open it up to Q&A. All right, so I'm seeing more Faces, excellent. So much better to see a face than a name. All right, so Zhao, are you, uh, you ready? Yeah, ready. So. One, two, three, say cheers. Okay. Thank you so much, Zhao. We All got right, it. Thanks. it up. So I'm gonna hand it back to the organizers and we wanna open it up for Q&A. Great, uh, thank you very much. So we have now about yeah, 15, 16 minutes for, uh, for the Q&A. That is a lot of time. Uh, we will, um, um, half past, we will formally close it, but we will also stay a little longer here in case there are additional questions afterwards coming up. Um, uh, the photo we have done, so uh, the floor is open for any questions. Please, please uh, raise hand. Um, I also saw some comments here in the chat that I will pick up, but if somebody, wants to start with a question, please um, raise your hand and, and uh, shoot out uh, the question. Um, I just pick up 
in the meantime, something from the from the chat. Uh, Daniel Hume was uh, asking a question, and that is interesting to to our paper about the uh, net effect of um, uncertainty. Uh, Daniel, do you want to specify a, a little a little more the the question here? Is he still here? Okay, maybe. Hi, Jan. Are you okay? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just I think it's a a very basic question that. And we know that uncertainty tends to have a paralyzing effect on investment and strategic change in general. So I think I saw in your table where the main effect of a demand uncertainty is highly negative. And the interaction term between, uh, the interaction term was positive, but much smaller than, much, much smaller than the main effect. So isn't the, the first order effect is that just everything goes down, including imitation. Thanks, Daniel. Um, so uh, demand uncertainty actually has a uh, positive effect uh, once you also consider competitive uncertainty and uh, the interactions uh, that we have with competitive performance and the, uh, the rank uh, of the focal firm, right? So um, we believe that there is evidence that it's actually positively affecting the, the likelihood of imitation. It's competitive uncertainty that has a highly negative effect. So the more your competitors seem to be changing their new investment allocations among the different genres, uh, the less you seem likely uh, to follow those kinds of moves, at least according to our results. But I think that the general question that you have is, is a great one about uh, basically whether or not firms change their portfolios less when uncertainty is higher, right? Uh, and I can see certainly reasons why that might be the case um, in, in a number of different contexts. In our context though, I think, Uncertainties just kind of seem to be quite pervasive. So there is some underlying level of uncertainty assumed to be part of it um, and still life goes on. So we, we guess that it might be less affected uh, compared to other contexts. Thank you very much. Um, um, Asim Kao, you also raised an important point here linking back whether our, uh, our paper could be linked back to the multi-market competition here and um, while we look at product portfolio, we, we stayed a little bit away from the multi-market competition literature because I'm not so sure whether competitive retaliation across genres in a, uh, across, uh, again, when movie, um, uh, movie studios are competing against each other, whether those kind of mechanisms uh, would, would work here. Uh, something that we would like to look at in, in future is the switching cost to maybe you are known for a certain genre, Western or something like this, and to imitate a, a, a rival here might have switching costs and they are different depending on uh, the type of genre you want to uh, move in in order to, to copy. So repositioning here has, has, uh, has a cost. And I think here we could actually have a look also a little bit in the multi-market competition literature because moving across markets obviously has also uh, costs and maybe we can uh, uh, inform a little, little bit the literature. Um, Asim, does that kind of answer your, your question or maybe you would like to add something? Well, I, I guess the comment I would have is more, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure why we should think about this as imitation, right? So all you're showing me is that, you know, these rivals are moving into markets that look more like each other's markets. That doesn't necessarily mean they're imitating each other. It could mean that they are coming up with completely different products in those markets because their rivals don't have, uh, because there's a gap left in that market, or it could be because there's demand growing, right? I mean, so I think 
I think the broader point I would make, I think one of the reasons to go back to Hart's presentation, I think one of the reasons we don't see all that much work on imitation is because uh, it's very hard to actually identify imitation versus rivalry versus you know, other things changing, right? Or just group effects. Uh, and, and so I, I would push you to think more carefully about like, like Marvin's slide on sort of, you know, here are the three things where these movies really look like they're doing exactly the same thing. I think that comes much closer, but of course it's very hard to get that. Uh, but maybe there's kind of, you know, similar, similar, um, uh, similar stars, similar direct, I mean, something else that is closer to imitation than just the fact that you're in the same markets, right? Uh, because to me, that's just competitive intensity. It's not, uh, it's not necessarily imitation. And as I mentioned, you know, my colleague, uh, Miles Shaver and, and my former colleague, Richard Wang, no, I mean, they have a bunch of papers looking at the sort of Chinese TV industry, which have measures quite similar to yours in terms of firms moving closer or further away from each other. And they talk about that as just competitive competition. So I think you want to think about what is imitation and what is competition. But, but I think it's a fascinating, I mean, frankly, if it was a competition story, it would be fascinating in and of itself, right? So. All right. Thank, 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 thank you, you very uh, much. Thank you for, the, for that point. And that's, um, yeah, something that we've been thinking about, about whether we can get finer grained measures of what's going on. Um, but one, just to clarify one thing, we're not looking specifically at whether they're getting further or closer together to each other's portfolios. We're looking at lagged similarity in new investments, right? So their portfolios may still remain pretty different, right? It's just, you know, what are your rivals investing in in the previous quarter? And are you sort of doing the same allocation across different genres? But point is well taken. Thanks, Asim. Yeah. So maybe we switch to Alex's paper. And again, uh, Asim, you had a comment here. Um, you were asking who's uh, creating the categories, maybe. Alex, you can directly uh, uh, answer the, the question. Would you like to? Yes, uh, I can answer Asim's question. And uh, as uh, shown in Marvin's uh, slide, uh, Apple, the platform owner, created those uh, categories. And uh, we consider it uh, shocks to the category system. Not necessarily exogenous, but it shocks to the category system. And uh, also, right, uh, I think this is a very good question, the intentionality of uh, category uh, spending. Even though, I mean, in the paper, we did not I mean, dive into this intentionality issue very clearly. However, we do feel like, right, uh, this is actually a very interesting question. And of course, um, there are other driving forces of category spending. So for instance, right, if you do not have the necessary uh, resource endowment, that would enable you, right, to spend across multiple categories, probably won't be able to do it. However, right, and maybe you do feel like it can be kind of strategic in the sense that, right, so our study offers a, a uh, competitive motivation, so to speak, right? So we found that if you are doing actually category spending, that would actually reduce any competitive tension you're going to feel from your competitors. In, in fact, this is consistent with a small group of research uh, in the categorization literature, which, which try to understand, right, why uh, firms or organizations, I mean, they try to span or straddle across different uh, categories. Because according to the traditional view, when you are across multiple categories, right, you are going to be penalized. And so the customers, I mean, they would be confused, they're not going to buy your products, and also the security analysts, they are not going to cover your stock. 
But I mean, these scholars, right, they try to actually understand, given that everybody knows, right, so there is a, a illegitimacy discount. Why so many firms? I mean, they, they're still I mean, doing the category spending. I mean, they found some different driving forces, but I feel like, right, our study, right, based on the uh, very uh, preliminary empirical funding we have, offers additional explanation. So it could be strategic in the sense that, and uh, it, it may help firms shield, I mean, from very uh, intense competitive tension. Thank you very much. Um, Heather, you also wrote a, a question, a clarification question here. Um, I'm unclear about the uh, identity ambiguity and whether it is intentional or a result of other issues. Uh, maybe Alex or Chia Ying, um, would you like to, to respond to that one? I feel like I already answered that question because, right. Right. and uh, I like that question a lot. So that's why right. I was thinking about it when uh, Alex was making the presentation. Yeah, so, so basically what I said just now, right? Just, I mean, talk about, uh, uh, yeah, Heather's issue re re regarding the intentionality. All right, I was searching for questions here, so I <laughs> half listening. All right, thank you. Um, uh, Asim, you also had a question to Alex. Uh, I, Why is that? I think Marvin actually covered this, right? I mean, I think there's just the question of, is this just demand, right? We're just, we create a new category, a whole bunch of people flood in, and then we have to, you know, we see more activity in that thing because there's just more, there's more demand in that new category than there is in the old category. Uh, so is that competitive intensity or is it just demand? So I think that's something to think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, right, and uh, this is actually a very good I mean, question. And also, right, uh, Marvin mentioned this uh, as well I mean, in his uh, slides and he called it demand-induced innovation. And so here, right, I have to actually say a little bit more about the positioning of our paper. We try to kind of locate our paper in uh, competitive dynamics. And uh, I think you're right. You can call it innovation, right? I think Marvin is right as well. But in the competitive dynamics literature, we actually view uh, new product introduction, uh, including uh, innovation as a way of uh, measuring or capturing uh, the competitive uh, aggressiveness of individual firms. So the theoretical background I'm here, and actually came from Austrian School of Economics. So basically, right, what we try to argue is when um, there, there is a new market, just like what you correctly pointed out, when there is a new demand. So for firms, right, in order to kind of uh, 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 capture this uh, new demand right, and try to kind of understand and, uh, the demand, search for the best model that would actually satisfy customers' changing preference, right? They need to continuously update your products. They need to engage in continuous innovation. So in that literature, they call it entrepreneurship discovery, but they also kind of use it as a way to capture the competitive I mean, action of individual firms. So that's why, right? So even though I think you're totally correct, right? So in a new category, there's a new demand that's going to drive new innovation. But that's just our way of, I mean, calling it, right, because of the positioning of our study. Alex, do you have anything else to add? Uh, yes, I think uh, Asim raised an excellent question. Thank you so much for the point. And uh, to link to the idea of customer demands, uh, we think in the new category, when it opens, uh, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty. And one source of uncertainty is 
uh, basically developers don't know what the customer demands are there. So they need to continuously innovate, making this uh, uh, Marvin called incremental innovation by updating their products to meet those new demands. So uh, such uh, competitive moves in identifying, clarifying customers' demands uh, is also part of their uh, competitive actions. So we think uh, the argument can be incorporated into uh, our uh, logic. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That links to one of uh, Nick's comments also where maybe competitive moves or imitation here as a move could could be a way of learning more about, about demand, right? So there's lots of experimentation, for example, going on, and you might, might want to keep some factors stable so you, you are imitating uh, uh, um, others in the industry and then you're, you're experimenting on, on a few other factors in order to figure out what, uh, what, what demand is. And, and that was mentioned as an opportunity, actually, to, uh, to, to study here. I don't know whether anybody else would like to uh, to add something here or has general comments or responses. I, I have, yeah, I have a couple. I have a student, Sangyoon uh, Kim, whose uh, dissertation is looking at, and, and there are others have looked at related topics, the benefits of being imitated. Now, there are many, many ways to think about these benefits, but one benefit is because, because of uh, un, the imitator's uncertainty about what the focal firm is doing, their imitation is often, you can think of it as, as, as a slightly different experiment on what the focal firm is doing. And that provides new information to the focal firm being imitated. So, 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 so it is not just that I imitate to gain benefits, but, but even being imitated can provide an informational benefit, particularly if there are asymmetries between the imitator and the focal firm in their ability to use the information from what I would think of as this imitator's experiment. Yeah, I have a thought about that as well. I mean, I would caution against lumping together product updates about learning about demand and just calling that competitive intensity. I think those are two different things. Even a monopolist with no competition may need to learn about demand by making frequent product updates. So, I, and I don't think that just observing more product updates necessarily tells you about competitive intensity. Okay, thank you very much. Brian, you would like to say something? I unmute you. You're muted. Uh, you know, it can be measured, right? So, uh, so, so, so I see, uh, and my student Gigi, uh, who is uh, at the Franklin, uh, sorry, um, Frankfurt School of Economics and Management now. So we just published a paper at. Um, uh, you know the uh, uh, organization science. I think uh, in the innovation setting, it's possible to separate out imitation from innovation. For example, uh, based on let's say patent citation uh, patents versus new product in, uh, introduction, right? Of course, that setting is uh, uh, medical device, right? So medical device, we can precisely capture you know, original, let's say, pacemaker and an imitative uh, pacemaker, right? And then we can also look at the underlying uh, citation patterns, right? Who starts who, leader citing a laggard or vice versa, right? So that's also uh, uh, interact uh, uh, learning and competition, right? So using a longitudinal data set. 
So I guess going back to Nick's earlier co comment, why isomorphism literature not really uh, kind of active now? I think in part because the inability to separate out, right? Whether it's the imitation or it's driven by some underlying demand change or something, right? So maybe you know uh, better data. That that's why you know like uh, some kind of experiments, right? To really tease apart the mechanism or use let's say uh, uh, more fine-grained uh, uh, data that has both innovation and imitation to separate that. So I think um, uh, very much agree with you. Okay, thank you very much. So officially the time, uh, the formal part is is over and I wanted to uh, first thank you to, uh, to the discussants that took the time to prepare, go through our presentations and develop some, some interesting thought and join us here. I wanted to thank to, uh, to STR for allowing us to organize this, this symposium and put a bit more attention on the imitation topic. And I want to uh, thank all the participants who joined us here uh, to discuss and, and reflect. And I hope that with the forthcoming AOM and all the sessions that maybe we can see, uh, see some more. Uh, I want to um, invite panelists and discussants to stay a little longer in case there are some more questions, but many of you might also have other obligations to go so thank you very much and um uh, that was that was great and uh the internet even worked uh, so i'm very happy too <laughs> thank you, thank thank you very you. much thank you very much everyone for attending and yeah we'll definitely stay on if people want to stay but officially you know it's ended and you're welcome to leave um all right so jan you can be the moderator Maybe we can also say uh, a couple of words uh, for, for the discussants. So thank you so much, uh, Marvin uh, and Nick, um, and uh, apologies that we were not able to get you uh, a complete uh, draft of the paper in time. Uh, we needed that extra month and a half before AOM to actually get one together. Uh, but it's, um, I think Marvin's comments are very uh, reflective of the state of the paper. It's still very much a work in progress and we've got plenty to do in terms of focusing uh, the framing and making sure that the uh, empirics are, are as solid as they can be. Uh, but thanks for, for your uh, reflections on this. And Nick, sure. thanks for the uh, broader overview on your uh, range of fascinating uh, questions on the topic. Um, the only one I will uh, just quickly add to in terms of the determinants of imitation costs compared to other things, I think you know we can go back again to the work on different kinds of isolating mechanisms. Um, right, so different legal, economic, uh, sometimes even social uh, barriers potentially to imitation. Uh, and just as a very uh, blatant plug here, uh, I'm in a lucky position to have recently had a conditionally accepted paper at Academy Management Review, which also positions design as a further isolating mechanism kind. Uh, so that should be coming out uh, very soon and should hopefully uh, provide some further room for discussion. So I wanted to respond to some of, Nick had a lot of interesting and provocative questions. I want to leave the official airtime to the presenters, but let me just make a, a few comments. Um, so, I mean, why we don't see papers anymore on mimetic isomorphism, I, to be honest, I'm not sure. I mean, I, you know, that's the sociology perspective. Um, th th there is this broader question about whether as human beings, we are just born to imitate. I mean, whether some of this at the individual level is innate. Um, I mean, we're, but we're, we're talking here about organizations that are imitating. So presumably the, the individual proclivity to imitation, whatever it may be, doesn't explain what happens at the organizational level. And um, I don't know, I, I've tended to view the mimetic isomorphism as kind of the, 
basically pretty much the information um, explanation, but uh, not all sociologists have liked that classification. Um, so so you, you brought up some interesting points about you know, technological uncertainty and rivalry and in industry structure. Um, so certainly industry structure matters a lot. I mean, at one extreme where you have, when an industry is perfectly competitive, you know, think about farming like hybrid corn, you know, imitation is, is diffusion. I mean, there's, there's all this work on technological diffusion. Um, and then when the industries become more concentrated, the, you know, all the strategy and rivalry, you know, it becomes more interesting and more complicated. Um, I mean, just you brought up Coke and Pepsi. Um, this paper that, that uh, Shigeru and I never published um, is, is all about the soft drink industry. And as you indicated, in the US, you got, we've got this very strong dynamic of Coke and Pepsi imitating each other as a way to you know, enhance demand and, and create entry barriers. Whereas in Japan, where there are about 45 different soft drink manufacturers, Coke is the biggest. Uh, has about the same share as in the U.S., but it's it's a completely different world. I mean, there's all kinds of really interesting stuff going on over there. Um, and I, you know, when when Shigeru um, st stops being dean of a major Japanese business school, maybe he and I will get together and, and actually get these things out. Um, but but yeah, I, I I think that industry structure and and the fact that these dynamics can go very different ways. Um, in some cases, just based on kind of what would seem to be chance events is, is um, you know, is, is an important point. Um, you know, imitation costs versus innovation costs. I mean, Brian brought up the point about absorptive capacity, which is really all about, you know, imitation. I don't know if Hart is still there, but, um, you know, Hart did his little statistical analysis of the SMJ. If he would have put absorptive capacity in you've got a lot more counts on, on imitation papers. Um, and I do think that, you know, you know, Brian brought up, you know, absorptive capacity, the papers are at the, the firm level, but Brian was really talking about this at the country level. I mean, China's had a strategy of absorptive capacity um, of, you know, various types of practices. Um, you know, the Japanese did some of the same things you know, decades ago. Uh, and then the question is, once you get to this level, you know, how does it, how does it emerge? Do you actually get more innovation? I, I do think that there's an interesting, uh, you know, difference between established firms and startups that, that, that for established firms, you know, being an, an imitator like Microsoft is usually the dominant strategy. Um, you've got the resources to do it. You invest in absorptive capacity or whatever. If you're a startup, you just, you know, you roll the dice and take your chances with an innovation. You, there's no way you're going to beat Microsoft, of course. Yeah, just anyway. a quick, yeah, quick addition. I, I think uh, Dan and Wes, when they wrote the absorbed capacity paper, I think the contact was the Japanese firms imitating U.S. firms. That was that's the late uh, 80s, I think. That was a big debate that time. Uh, so. <laughs> That motivates them to write this absorbed capacity, right? And then, you know, you, the yeah. opening paragraph, exactly as you described. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just uh, add something on, because I just had a chat comment from, from Dimitri um, and to Jan's uh, paper on the imitation in the movie industry, because um, uh, for, for me, 
I think it's also quite important um, to look at what type of um, good we have because movies are experience goods. In other words, you have to see the movie as a customer to actually you know, know whether you liked it. Um, and so we do have an, an, an issue there with sort of signaling. Um, and then the other thing about this product is that these movies are tremendously expensive. So we cannot sort of um, invest um, in the um, sort of, you know, in, 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 in incremental uh, terms. So this uh, sort of copying strategy um, has been sort of super common um, um, because only about one, 10% of the movies are actually, you know, do break even. Um, and so copying um, something that is successful and even copying yourself in the sense of, I mean, sequels have been sort of a super, you know, self, essentially a type of self um, imitation. And the, I think the intriguing thing there is because you looked at data from the 1990s. Um, and I think it was a very different um, industry then. Now, of course, with Netflix having all this data on how, customers actually, you know, use, um, you know, or actually, you know, what, what their um, patterns of watching um, things and what they find attractive. I, I think it could be quite intriguing to actually compare, you know, this, the, the time you looked at and sort of the modern times and, and then see really what is the, I mean, what is imitation and what might be just inherent in the industry it, itself. But I think it's a, it's a cool, cool starting point there. Hope I made it a bit more clear on what I thought. Can I, can I just add for you guys, add, add to, to those comments, um, something that didn't make it into my slide is that, um, you know, you're assuming that all firms are the same, all these movie companies are the same, but they're not. I mean, some, you know, you know Disney, you know, is very different from a, you know, a smaller, I don't know exactly how many studios are in your sample, um, but but there, there are reasons why the pattern of imitation would vary from firm to firm based on things that you might be able to capture in your analysis. Yeah, it's, a, mean, it's a great, you know, be, because there's so much data, um, I mean, it's a great context to look at these things. It's just, you know, it's just hard to make sense of it all. Yeah, and there is a, there's a lot on leaders and laggards and different resources. And I mean, in the international business literature, the idea of catching up, versus seeking diversity versus exploiting what you have in a different market. I mean, all of that I think is very relevant to this, some of these strategy choices that are kind of under considered as well. Would it be fair to say about this literature about imitation that we have uh, some uh, interesting conceptual papers, theoretical papers, papers that use uh, uh, modeling of various kinds, but that when we come to the empirical context, we struggle because it's difficult to really define and measure imitation precisely um, relative to other things, and that lots of things get conflated. Is that, would that be a summary of? I, I think that's, yeah. that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I, I agree. It's like an industry life cycle, right? This academic field or academic industry, right? So kind of phenomena and theorizing, but then the measurement not really catching up. So I, in fact, when Anne-Marie Hart and I wrote our paper, so honestly, you know, the, the 2009 paper asymmetrics to be lower. So I always debated with Anne-Marie or even fought with her because I was saying, look, we can't measure 
spill over. But I'm really obviously very strong-minded. She's like, fine. Uh, so we look at the pattern. So later I was like, okay, at least we should try to, for example, in certain settings, I think you guys mentioned, right? Maybe in certain settings, we can, uh, for example, medical device, FDA actually classifies certain product as imitative, right? They call it 510K, for which you don't need to go through the like lengthy approval process. And then they also have a patent data that can match to the product, right? So that can get closer. So another way is some kind of experiment. So uh, in, in the context of Chinese firms, right? They call it a copycat or Shenzhen or not iPhone, but a high phone. <laughs> so, so, you know, what we did was we, we, we put them together and then in front of a customer. Turns out that some of them indeed hurt iPhone sales, but some of them actually benefit uh, the iPhone sales, either because of uh, this kind of advertising effect. Or what we show is psychologically, the rising middle class, the young people, feel even better when they see a lousy uh, Shenzhen or copycat on the side. They're like, my iPhone is awesome. Right? So they're actually more willing to pay for uh, iPhone. So yeah, to come back to your comment, indeed, if we think about the uh, life cycle of this literature, probably I think more in perks, right? Uh, in certain settings or you know, IB literature as uh, Heather said, right? Then probably that, that's the stage uh, it should be to revive with, you know, previous uh, theoretical discussions. Yeah, no, it also suggests that your comments suggest the demand uncertainty is, is very complicated, right? And so we, sim we simplify it, but it's, you know, younger, older, like demographic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Everything that has effect. All right, so I am gonna end this session because I think it's down to mostly the people who are part of the session. <laughs> and so that's, that's a good sign to say, let's end it here. Um, but thank you so much. We really have appreciated SCR. We've been trying to do stuff for our members and we've really appreciated people stepping up and being part of this. And so thank you so much. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. So, all right. Thank you. Bye. You guys will get the chat later. Someone will copy it for you and paste it and send it to you. Okay. Thank Bye -bye. you. Bye-bye. I'm going to end this. Thank you.